I'll start out on a very transparent note. Um, Randy was a, a friend of mine and a mentor. Um, you'll even see I wrote this sermon over the past week or two, and it even starts with my time with him many years ago. Um, and uh, yeah, been grieving this, this past couple days and been grieving with a lot of my friends who have been doing even a lot more life with him than I had recently. And, um, but I get to come up here um, this morning uh, with hope because of what we just sang about, how the chains uh, that we feel so often uh, were broken by Jesus and will be broken eternally by Jesus and we will be with him. Um, and that is the hope that I cling to this morning and that is uh, the hope that I hope Jesus gets to call all of us to this morning, that whatever we're going through, that, that he would be our greatest desire and our greatest vision. So... Um, yeah, just wanted to be really transparent. I have, I have tissues with my fire if I start crying or anything. But uh, yeah, you're, you're family. So we get, to, we get to learn together at the feet of Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us. Um, Jesus, I just thank you that Hebrews talks about that you are a great uh, sympathizer with us, that you've gone through every trial, gone through every temptation, um, experienced um, the greatest of pains, and, and you, you are here with us. Uh, so, Spirit, I pray that you'd comfort us. Spirit, I pray that um, you would sit with us in our mourning, in our grieving, but you would also, um, like through your power, give us a peace and a hope uh, for the future that, that the world cannot offer us, um, but only you can. So, we call upon your name this morning, and we thank you that we know uh, because of your promises and because of your work, you're here with this family this morning, and, and you're here with our family in Tacoma, and you're here with our family um, all around the world. So, amen. Um, <clears throat> in 2011, I felt a call on my life uh, to step into vocational ministry, whatever that meant. Uh, and I was helping lead a college ministry at the time. And so I, uh, I was in college, and so I said, let me intern for a church. And I actually uh, went to Tacoma, Washington, and interned at Soma Tacoma, uh, for a couple months, and that point in my life was really pivotal. Um, it, it really, God, there's a couple different points in my life where God, you know, adjusted my trajectory, and, and leaving that summer, I left uh, having a new realization and understanding that the gospel was for every part of my life, um, that, that I did not have some spiritual aspects or some religious times on my calendars, and then the other times were, you know, maybe tangentially like related, but not really. I, I got to leave realizing that God, um, God wanted all of my life, and that everything I did at my work, in school, in practice, uh, actually said something about what I was worshiping, what I was believing. Um, and even more so, like he had grace for me in each, one, each areas of those lives to redeem it. And so I just was set on fire for, for all the ways God wanted to grow me. Um, and then also, I, I was really passionate about uh, realizing that this framework of missional communities, of, of living together as a family, uh, really was a, was a way that I wanted to explore more. And I believed God wanted to make disciples through in my life. And so I went back to school, uh, and I was still leading a college ministry, and I actually took our leadership team, and then the whole ministry, uh, like the, all the, the 40 or 50 people a part of the ministry, through the story of God that fall. 
super awesome. Got to see a lot of people who knew God get to know more about him and got to hear about him. Got to see uh, people who didn't know him that were just exploring, uh, engage with God's story. Uh, we actually got to see uh, a couple missional communities started uh, at my school, which was really exciting. It was a hot mess, but it was, it was really cool. And um, the next couple years, I just was seeking uh, to, to see the gospel take root at my school. And, and it was my joy. Like, yeah, there wasn't many other things in my life at that time that gave me as much joy as being able to love and serve people and, and walk with Jesus and see what work he was doing. And so leaving school, um, I felt like God was still calling me to get into like the business world, but I had this sense of like he wanted, he called me to plant a church someday, and he called me to be able to give all of my time towards that. And I had this really awesome vision in my mind of like, you know, you're going to take me into the workforce, but I'm going to be able to work this out somehow and, and eventually plant a church someday. And people like Randy, people, other leaders in my life are affirming of that and excited to see what God was going to do. Um, but what I believe is God had a, a, a greater vision for my life. He had a, a much grander vision, um, a much more full vision. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we've been going through the book of Mark, um, and we've talked about how Jesus changes everything. Brad, I think, said this in the first week, but I loved, I loved this, this little sentence of like, the greatest thing and, and the biggest thing that any human does in their life is what they do with Jesus. So we've been fleshing that out week by week. And we're at a really interesting point because in Mark chapters 1 through 8, Mark's been painting this picture of who Jesus is. He's been showing us what he's doing. He's been showing us how he's been healing people. We've been he's been showing us how he relates with other people. And in chapter 8, we've covered a couple years of his ministry, um, and we see Jesus kind of pivot and actually say, who do you think I am? And he, he directs that question towards the disciples. And what we'll see is the disciples came to Jesus and had this vision for what their life would be like with Jesus. Um, and and I, I'm going to say that we do the same thing when we come to him uh, initially and when we try to live life with him continually. And I think Jesus has a greater vision for our lives uh, than even what we hope for often. Uh, so let's, let's jump in uh, to chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 27. If you want to open up your phones or your Bibles, uh, we'll start there. I'll give you all a second. <laughs> I was waiting to hear pages flip, and I was like, oh, no, everyone's on their phones, so it's, it's quiet. Uh, <laughs> so verse 27, Jesus uh, went on with his disciples to the, villages, to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So for a quick pit stop, there were many misconceptions about who Jesus was. People were trying to figure it out and, and parse it apart. Some thought he was an old prophet of a coming back. Some thought he was literally John the Baptist resurrected. Others from his hometown who'd like grew up with him thought he was crazy. 
He's like, oh no, he's a carpenter. Like I don't know, I don't know what happened, but he's just a carpenter. Um, it was it was really a mystery for them at that time as they were living life. Uh, but we see Peter proclaim this really loaded word. Uh, he says, "You are the Christ." And so Jesus, knowing that that's a very loaded word and that Peter meant a lot of things with that, uh, he unpacks what Jesus is saying, this is what the Christ is going to do. And so we jump back in in verse 31. And Jesus says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. I think Peter missed it somewhere. (laughs) Something something missed. Uh, He proclaimed Jesus as the Christ, but... Like what I said before, it was a very loaded term. Many people uh, during this time had a particular view of what the Christ would do. When they thought about the Messiah or the one who would save them, they were thinking about a guy who would free them from oppression, from Rome, who was politically and socioeconomically taxing them. Uh, and, um, and they thought that their enemies would be conquered and that the Messiah would ultimately reestablish the state of Israel. It was, it was semi-nationalistic like, in nature. Um, and it wasn't malicious or anything. It, there would be polling from texts like uh, Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah was an Old Testament prophet. And when they were exiled in Babylon, exiled by a different, and ruled by a different army in a different country, Jeremiah said that a righteous branch would be, would be brought up. And that this righteous branch would execute justice and that they would dwell securely with their people, or dwell securely with their God again. And so th- that's, that's the mindset that they were in. They were looking for someone with political power. Um, they were looking for someone with, with, who had royalty or influence and authority. But what they missed was that God was talking about, he wasn't talking about dwelling securely from like a socioeconomic or political standpoint. He was talking about dwelling securely with God in relationship with him. Like walking with, with God again. Being united in relationship with their, with their Lord again. Almost like a, I, I thought of like Adam and Eve. We went through the story of God yesterday um, as a missional community. And I thought of like how Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of day. That's what, that's what securely dwelling with God looks like. Right? And so Jesus was really echoing other prophecies like Isaiah 53, which they just kind of missed, I think. But Isaiah 53 talks about that the Messiah or the Christ would be pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, but that by his wounds we would be healed. Like our chains would be broken is what we just sang about. We were singing Isaiah 53, that many would be accounted, many, all of us would be accounted righteous because of Jesus' work. Amen. Keep <laughs> this is what Jesus was talking about. And so this is why Jesus reacts so sternly to Peter. Even if Peter wasn't being malicious, or, but he says, your, your mind is set on the things of man. 
And I think the, uh, a signature characteristic of our mind said the thing of man, there's probably a lot of things you could say, but the thing that came to mind for me was that it's putting ourselves at the center. It's functioning out of a, a taking first for me before worrying about others. It's after the Christ, like the guy who they'd been prophesying about for hundreds of years is standing in front of Peter and saying, this is what I'm going to do. Peter's reaction is, no, 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 like, come here, Jesus, like, come with me, like, this is what you really need to do, like, hear my plan. Jesus is going to prophesy two more times, because he's really gracious. It's like what Brad said last week, how we forget things that God tells us. We need to, we need to hear it constantly. Peter, or Jesus, in chapters 9 and 10, uh, prophesies two more times, and by the third time, you think that the disciples are starting to get it. Because the scripture even says he says it plainly, which is like, I don't know, as clear as you can, you can say it. And when James and John, two other disciples, right after he says the third time that he's going to die and rise again, he, they basically are like, hey, when you get back, can I sit on your right hand in glory? And can, can James sit on your left hand in glory? It's this, this taking for oneself that Jesus so strongly rebukes. It's like their, their grand visions, almost up to the end of Jesus' life, was like, Jesus, you get the glory, and then make sure I get glory too, because like, I've done a lot. <laughs> it's, it's almost like a quid pro quo with the God of the universe. But you see, the disciples are not alone in making a quid pro quo with God. And saying, you are Lord, but also this is what I expect in my life. For those of us who are Christians, we often come to Jesus and confess our sins sincerely. But then we, like without thinking, expect God to endorse or bring about whatever vision we have for our life or whatever we think will satisfy us most. And in God's grace, sometimes that is Jesus. And sometimes we are like, oh man, I just need you, Jesus. But then other times, it's a lot of other things. Because our world has shaped us, uh, and, and our world tells us that you should pursue whatever makes you most happy. This is what we're told uh, day in and day out. That we should, de- we should deem what makes us most happy, and then we should also do whatever we need to do to get there. Often at the, at the, at the uh, cost of others. It's what Thomas Jefferson said hundreds of years ago, the, the life of uh, uh, pursuit of happiness. It's what, it's what Will Smith made a great movie about. <laughs> uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a you-centered life. It's a me-centered life. It's hyper-individualistic, which is the, the, the water we swim in um, in the U.S. And we may help others sometimes, but often it's only to, to make us feel good or, 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 or to put a, a little mark in our, in our record, right? I think we often, without realizing it, craft our entire lives, our work, our friends, maybe even the church we're a part of, uh, how we structure our family, how we do our finances, ma- purely with us at the center and our, our, whatever our vision is at the center. 
So I want to ask us, if you're new with us, we have dialogue, we talk sometimes. I want to ask us, what are the things that you think you center your life around? Yeah, career, dreams associated with career, with work, vocation. Yeah, yeah. Fleeting emotions. Fleeting emotions. <laughs> we, it's, it's one thing one week, and then as our emotions fleet to something else, it's centered around something else another week. Yeah. Like how creative and original I can be. Yeah. Kids, they take a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. How we appear to others. How we appear to others. Yeah. Comfort. Comfort it means a lot of different things. <laughs> yeah, making a difference, having an impact on society. Not a bad thing in and of itself. What else? I think like influence, like that feeling that like we matter to others. Yeah. Yeah. Having fun. Having fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think we center our lives around a lot of things that are good in and of themselves. But when they're the center of our lives, they drastically fall short for what we're looking for. No one mentioned, mentioned marriage or their spouse, but I assume some of you, and I do sometimes, center my existence, my life, around how my marriage is doing. And our world says that when marriage is, is not going well, at a certain point, whatever that threshold is for you, that you can leave it because it's not, not good for you anymore. It's not, for, it's not reaching your greatest desire. Career is the same way when it isn't going the way we want. Not that we can't change careers, not that we can't change jobs. I would be <laughs> the one of many to say that. But when it is the center of our life, we often take our marriages, our careers, our messy missional communities, and we suddenly take God aside and, and we say, hey, you need to change this. This is not what I signed up for. I'm doing X, Y, Z. Why aren't you coming through on your deal? And I want to be clear, this is different than grieving and mourning or being sad about brokenness. You know? Like our marriages, like when you're married to someone, they cause you pain. When we're working with people, it hurts because people are sinful. When we do life with a community of people, they make decisions that hurt us sometimes. You know? So it's not that we can't mourn, but how do we engage with God in the morning? How do we engage with God when our vision isn't going the way we planned? You see, Jesus enters this scene of our world and he's, he, he actually has a vision that's good. And that he's worthy of glory and happiness and honor. 
And right in front of him are his disciples trying to grab some for themselves. All right? But Jesus does not disown them or just kick them out. He says, I have a greater vision for you than the one you're trying to go after. He says, Peter, you don't need political or social fame. You don't need a state of Israel. That's not going to save you. James and John, you don't need glory at my right hand. That's not what I'm going to do for you. He responds to James and John, and he actually says a little bit later in Mark 10, sorry for whoever's preaching it. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Um, He says, whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Whoever uh, would be first must be last. He doesn't just say that for us. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You hear Isaiah 53 echoing, by my wounds you are going to be healed. Jesus flips uh, this man's expectations of let me take for myself first, and he says, I'm going to give all of myself for you that you may be welcomed back into relationship with me. He, he's, he's speaking to like a greater vision, a greater need that we have. He, he's saying, you, know, you have these puny visions, but I'm going to defeat the corruption and brokenness that, that you were born into. That, that affects the way in which we relate with ourselves. That affects the way we relate with our, our spouses, our friends, our communities, our cities, our coworkers. He says, you're putting these hope in these things that aren't actually a, a great vision, that aren't actually going to satisfy. Because Jesus' kingdom is not marked by a political power. It's not marked by wealth uh, to be comfortable or to buy a home in L.A. <laughs> it's not marked by uh, a church that never hurts each other or that's perfect, that always meets every one of each other's needs. Jesus' kingdom is marked by people who are made right with their God again. By receiving forgiveness by his life and his death and his resurrection. That he would heal the brokenness in our hearts. That he would start to restore it and that we'd get to love him and, and know him intimately. And walk with him. This family is what I would submit is our greatest hope. This is what Jesus points the disciples to when they're looking to something else other than him for a vision, a hope, happiness, satisfaction. He's saying, your greatest hope is relating with your God again. But for this to happen, Jesus says that something has to die. I know, it's been a rough morning. It's been a tough morning, but Jesus says something has to die. And if, let's, uh, let's pick up in verse 34. Uh, if you want to open your phones again. <laughs> uh, he says, in calling to the crowd, or calling the crowd to him with his disciples. So, so he's just told his disciples what the Christ has come to do, and he's just rebuked Peter. And then he's like, let me call the crowd to me and fill them in as well. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. I mean, Jesus says, he's pretty blunt. He's like, hey, a life with your glory and your, your vision and your recognition and your success, just like a life with yourself at the center, it needs to die. Because it's, it's leading to hurt and pain, actually. You know, we all, we all feel it and we all know it. But Jesus says, he doesn't just leave us there. He's like, I will actually give you new life. Let me give you a greater vision that I am going to reunite you with your God again. And I'm going to make you whole. That even in the face of death, even in the sadness of that, we can have a hope. That's really, really good news. Like that's news that's going to last more than anything else will. You see, when, when we're most satisfied in God like that, we don't try to create quid pro quos with him anymore. Well, we may try to, but then we keep <laughs> repenting of trying to. Because we can work in our, in our careers, our splintered and fractured careers, because our jobs aren't our hope for glory or purpose anymore. We have a new, new vocation. We get to walk with our God again. We get to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and, and love others as ourselves. We get to live in our really messy missional communities. If you've been in a missional community long enough, you know it's messy. You know as you try to love each other and love our neighbors, uh, we hurt each other. We sometimes let each other down. But that doesn't have to bring us to despair anymore. It can hurt, but those people are not, are not who's, who's fulfilling me, who I expect to be perfect for me anymore, because I'm reconciled with God. So now, what the awesome thing is, man, he can not only help us pursue each other in the hurt and the pain, but as we've been reconciled with him, he reconciles relationships between each other. That's really beautiful. We can try to love our spouse or our kids without centering our life around them. Because we know that our life and our purpose and our, our joy, our deepest joy comes from him. It does not correlate to happy feelings every day. I just want to be clear. But it does correlate to a deep, deep hope. A steadfastness in a rock that won't, won't fail and won't crumble, even when we've crumbled. I haven't planted uh, a church yet, or led planting a church yet, or, uh, yeah, I've worked at several companies. I've wrestled with uh, vocation, centering my life around it, probably, most of the time, centering my life around finances most of the time. But God's been calling me to something much greater all along. Steadfastly calling me. Week in, week out, year in and year out. He's been calling me to know him more deeply. And to love him more deeply. 
and to walk with him more. Jesus, at the end of his ministry, comes back to, the, to Peter, the disciple he rebuked. And he doesn't say, hey, what's your plan to help organize this church that's about to blow up? He, does, he doesn't, like, ask what his credentials are. He just asks him the same question three times. He says, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Then feed my sheep. You know, do you love me? I'd ask, I'd ask you today, do you love God this morning? More than anything else. Is he your greatest joy and your hope? You don't need to answer that question too quickly, but like tomorrow, ask yourself, like, what am I looking for for hope today? For joy? What is such power or influence in my life that if it doesn't work out, I will be brought to despair. An author, Barbara Kingsolver, said it best. The very least you can do in your life is figure out what you hope for. And the most you can do is live inside that hope. Not admire it from a distance, but live right in it, under its roof. Let's pray. God, uh, thank you for pursuing us, for loving us. God, thank you that even though I keep coming up with new visions for my life that will satisfy you faithfully, steadfastly, gently, call me back to yourself. And it's because of the grace of Jesus that you no longer see that sin. You no longer have this dividing wall of hostility between us. But we are united forever. I thank you that death cannot separate us. Amen.